the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Our visit today with Joyce Cordy, host of Reimagine America. Heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Joyce, I want to pick up the conversation where we left off just before the break. We've been talking, of course, about the influence of major media organizations like Facebook, which while everybody puts it in the social contact category, it's actually a major media corporation. And what else would you call it when they have access to 140 million pairs of eyes here in the United States alone? And so the the troubling thing here, as you point out, is that they are the single most convenient one-stop shopping opportunity to help influence public opinion, and there's no way to clearly, as we're discovering with the Russian investigation, to clearly and singularly identify who is behind that information, what their agenda is, and absent the ability to control that with some sort of a gatekeeper, it it is very unsettling to think of the ability to sway and shape public opinion. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, did the, the election necessarily get skewed because of the postings and the ads? Well, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But let's take another topic. Let's talk about nuclear war. Let's talk about, uh, I don't know, uh, climate change. Could we potentially see over time Facebook harnessed to completely redirect, to reshape popular public opinion to meet the goals and desires of some nameless, faceless individual or corporation? The answer here clearly is yes, and that's scary. I think it's already been done. I mean, if you look at the at the Mueller indictment um, of of a Russian firm using Facebook for this purpose, where they uh, actually uh, engaged with and and brought into their circle and got um, um, American citizens unwittingly to do their bidding, I think it's already happened. And so the very minimum that needs to happen to Facebook is to reckon with it as what it is, a media company that needs to be governed by exactly the same kinds of rules of, of disclosure, et cetera, that are applied to broadcast media, to television, to print media, et cetera. Well, and yeah. you've got a very valid point there. I mean, let's take, for example, the issue of um, political advertising in relationship to broadcast media. We are required by the FCC to have available on file, and this can be obtained by anybody on the planet that has access to a computer who can see our online public file, what candidates approached us to buy airtime, what amount of money they spent to buy that airtime, what they spent, how many ads they ran, the whole nine yards is all a matter of public disclosure and has been certainly in the 40-something years I've been involved in broadcasting. So there are attempts to at least provide um, full disclosure and clarity, and there's no surprise there. And yet none of that information is available to the general public 
via Facebook, and yet I could argue that their influence and reach is certainly broader, deeper, and more expansive than probably just about every uh, television and radio station in the country combined. I think you're absolutely right. And, and let's go a step further. If we want to talk about the motive of Facebook, they got paid for ads in rubles, okay, that were purporting to be American um, American entities, you know, ads on top of American flags, and they were paid by, in rubles. And nobody in their entire environment thought that maybe we should check this out with the SEC and see whether it's legal, because it's not. Well, and certainly if, if, if an order is coming in through the American Citizens Political Action Committee and, and they're paying you in, <laughs> in Russian rubles or Bitcoin, whatever, uh, that ought to raise some eyebrows to say, hmm, this seems to be a little bit suspicious. But sadly, I think, and there's a lot of this pervasive thinking within Silicon Valley, and that is, hey, if it, if it, if it ponies up the bucks, uh, don't question the motivation or the source. Just take the money and put it in the bank account and move on to the next one. Yeah, but you see, where are you, Mark Zuckerberg, as an American citizen? Where are you when you're running around giving um, big donor, you know, big donor parties at your house for both Republican and Democratic candidates? Where are you? What, what's your motivation other than to avoid regulation, I think? Um, you know, wh- where is your sense of patriotism that you would not be all over the poor little sales rep who took an ad, you know, who, who processed an ad paid for in rubles that says United Americans for Trump? I mean, where, e- e- even in retrospect, where is this American citizen, this patriot, in not reporting himself to the FEC? He is a robber baron. He's completely politically amoral. And, and there should be, you know, a consequence for that. Well, and, you know, I, I think that also goes to the heart of the fact that you have this multi-billion dollar corporation run by a multi-billion dollar heir who, in reality, does not have a degree. I understand that Harvard finally just gave him one, but he's technically a university dropout. And I think sometimes, as we saw, there, there was... There was a recording of him, I think it was a television interview, done back in 2009, where he said the private information that we have related to each of our users will never be sold, will never be traded, will never be made available. And we find out then barely a decade later, in fact, that's that's very much so going on. And so it, it not only presents a sense of double-mindedness here, but also makes you wonder, is this being done out of a sense of just, well, he's a college dropout, this kid's not really paying any attention, or are they fully aware of exactly what's going on here? And I think therein lies the real concern. It's one thing to say that the information was gathered 
and sold, but if they could argue we didn't really understand what was happening here and there was nobody that had any um, ill intent behind it, that's one thing. If they fully understand what was going on, this goes, I think, beyond a matter of needing to have regulation taking place to say, okay, there also needs to be somebody called to the carpet here. Somebody needs to be held accountable for all of this as well. Well, I think the person who needs to be held accountable is Mr. Zuckerberg. Buck stops here, as Harry Truman used to say. Yeah, the people who work for him take their direction from him. And if he did not, um, if he did not um, direct them to behave, to put their America First hat on, um, he is... then he is responsible for that. He says he's willing to go and testify before Congress. Should he yes, be? He's should the most appropriate person. Should should he be testifying or or uh, be called into questioning by Robert Mueller? Yes, I, I think he needs to explain himself. And then what steps need to be taken, in your opinion, Joyce Cordy, in order to begin building in some protections so that this doesn't happen again? I think we have to acknowledge the reality. Facebook is a media company. Facebook should be governed by exactly the same set of rules that um, any other broadcast organization is um, is held to. Well, and sadly here, this is also, I think, demonstrative of what has been a trend in recent years to have more and more foreign influence on U.S. media. And this includes outside foreign concerns that have um, investment stakes in U.S.-based broadcast and media corporations uh, to the fact that Um, There are something like 240 million households in America that have RT, Russia Today, piped in to their homes through the cable system, uh, whose agenda, if you watch it for more than 10 minutes, is abundantly clear. You can see the watermark of Putin all over it. And yet here they are in the United States with access to just about every household uh, on the continental 48. And yet can you imagine if we approached Russia and said we'd like to have our own um, cable television channel available all across Russia and the former Soviet Union, and uh, we'd like to just have an opportunity to do that so that we can get the American perspective on issues through the Voice of America made available. How fast do you think Moscow would agree to that? (laughs) Oh, when hell freezes over? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Well, Joyce, we're out of time. I sure appreciate the the insights, and we invite our listeners, you want to pick up the dialogue, you can do so this Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Joyce will once again host Reimagine America, as she does every Sunday from 9 to 10 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Information available on the web about Joyce's organization. You can get, of course, lots of great resources there. She's got blog postings, insights, and musings into a lot of issues of the day from a unique business person's perspective 
She's been involved in corporate America leadership for many, many years, and Joyce brings a fresh perspective to so many of these issues that we grapple with every day. Information available on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Check out the broadcast Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. Joyce Cordy with Reimagine America. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you think about building a structure, going to put up a house, an apartment complex, what do you need? Well, you need some important elements. First, you need the earth below it capable of supporting the weight of the building. So you don't want to have it on shifting sand. It's probably not good to have it on the edge of a cliff, right? Then you need to have upon that earth footings or a foundation that is capable of supporting the weight of the structure of the building, upon which then on that foundation goes the frame. Inside the frame goes things like plumbing and electrical, water, sewer, the like. On top of the frame go the walls to provide warmth and coolness, a roof over top to provide protection for the elements. Then in the interior, you want things like carpeting, heating, air conditioning to make the home comfortable. And then things like a kitchen to prepare meals, a bath, sleeping quarters, living quarters to make it habitable. But if you think about it, in all that entire process of going from no structure to a completed structure capable of supporting habitability or life, it all starts with one thing, a plan. Blueprints. My guest tonight, I think, would suggest that as we look at the amazing structure that we call home, called planet Earth, inside our galaxy, traveling about here in this amazing Milky Way, that in order for us to arrive at a place of habitability on planet Earth, there had to be a plan. The book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. Joining us today is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, best-selling author who mentioned quite a number of number one bestsellers to his name. We're pleased to have join us today Dr. Hugh Ross. And Dr. Ross, always a delight and an education to have you with us. Paul, thank you for inviting me. You know, we think about habitability, and, and uh, I, I think the example is you cite inside the pages of Improbable Planet that the the correlation between the capacity of, of creating a structure that allows us to put up a building and finally arrive at a place where we can have it and enjoy it, provide it uh, its serviceable use to us, uh, is very much uh, equal to equating life's sustainability features of Earth, aren't they? Well, they are, and what the book documents is the amount of design and fine-tuning you need, not just for life, but for plants and animals, and not just for plants and animals, but for human beings, and especially for human beings, where billions of us can live on the planet at one time and develop a technology where we can hear and respond to the redemptive message, the real reason why the Creator created the universe. And what we see is that the level of design goes up exponentially with each step. And so it actually begins with a Bible study I did where I noted that every creation text links the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of redemption and how the Bible states that God actually uh, starts his works of redemption before he creates anything. That would imply that everything that God creates is for the purpose of redemption. And that launched a three-year study on my part through the scientific literature to put that to the test. And indeed, that's what came out. 
is that literally every component of the universe, of Earth, of Earth's life, and every event in the history of the universe, Earth and Earth's life, plays a critical role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings in a short window of time. And, of course, not only playing a critical role, but it, it gives um, every every step, every aspect, just as I suggested with the, what you would need to create a structure that would be habitable for us to enjoy, uh, for, for livability. Uh, the same thing is true of planet Earth, that this is not just all coming together by accident. You speak of um, some of the features of planet Earth, for example, that are Necessary. They're essential to human life. Things like uh, the geographical, the chemical, atmospheric, biological, astronomical features of this planet that make it not only unique, but as you suggest in the book, um, going from simply the ability to sustain complex life to even having a reason why it's capable of sustaining that life. Yeah, I'll give you one example. I mean, for billions of humans to live on the planet at one time, we have to be living in an ice age cycle where the planet cycles between 10% ice coverage and 23% ice coverage, where the period of the cycle is 100,000 years. And this is the only time in Earth's history where we've had such a cycle. Moreover, to have billions of people develop technology, we have to be living in the warm interglacial period, which is 10% ice coverage, that follows the most severe ice age in the entire ice age cycle. And you've probably heard of things like climate warming and climate stability. What I document in the book is that we're living in a unique time window in the entire history of the Earth. The past 9,000 years, we've seen extreme climate stability at the optimal temperature for human civilization. Why? Because seven cycles in the variation of Earth's orbit and a rotation axis all came together to open up this unique time window. We've been in 9,000 years. At most, we can sustain it for another 1,000. And so God is giving us this brief time window in which we can take the redemptive message to all the people groups of the world and have them respond. And from a biblical perspective, this universe is a pathway to a far better universe. Dr. Yoon Ross, our guest today, a look at his new book, Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. The new book, by the way, just published by Baker Books. And uh, yeah, you're thinking about gift giving perhaps already. Um, Thanksgiving's just a couple of weeks away. Before you know that, soon after, of course, it'll be Christmas time. And uh, a book like this can not only be great for any skeptic, but anyone who wants to understand sort of the deeper story from the scientific reasoning uh, behind not only how things came to be, how man came to be, but most importantly, some of the reasons why. We'll get to more of those reasons why as our conversation with Dr. Hugh Ross continues and our look at Improbable Planet. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation continues with best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. Dr. Ross, in some respects, is this book sort of the sequel to um, your previous book that, that opens up the subject matter, why the universe is the way it is? Yeah, to some degree it is. I mean, that book was basically targeting how God designed the universe to eliminate evil and suffering. This book goes on to talk about how God designed the earth and all of its life so we can understand and respond to uh, his purpose for creating, namely to redeem us into a new creation, a new realm beyond this one. 
There are others out there. Um, I think of the Carl Sagans of the world that would suggest as we look at the layers of complexity that we're going to have you go into this evening, that all of this in relationship to Earth's capacity to support life is just simply an amazing coincidence. What of that notion? Well, often they're not looking at uh, the number of coincidences. Yeah, you could say maybe four or five of them are just coincidental, but when it adds up to hundreds and even thousands, that's what this book documents, thousands of different aspects of the history and the components have to be fine-tuned to make possible the existence of billions of human beings on the Earth. A few, maybe. Thousands, no. It's, it's clear evidence that God is controlling things. In fact, they argue, and I said this in front of scientific audiences, if we actually look at science from a redemptive perspective, we have a more efficient tool for rapidly advancing scientific progress. I mean, if indeed everything that we see in creation is for the purpose of redemption, that should give us a tool for discovery. And the book basically documents the success of that approach to science. And, of course, what's critical about uh, this research that you've done is not only do you demonstrate that there are thousands of factors involved uh, that need to be in place, but also the the tight measurements, um, the the tight confines to which um, something can swing from being compatible and habitable to suddenly inhabitable. I mean, for example, uh, we have temperatures across Earth, some of the highest temperatures in, in the deserts that reached 115, 120 degrees. I suppose if we saw that ratchet up by 10 or 15 more degrees and saw that take place in more places across the planet, suddenly planet Earth goes from being habitable to inhabitable pretty quickly. And a lot of that has to do with just simple things like the the, the tilt of the Earth, doesn't it? Well, it does, and there's a chapter in the book, Chapter 7, where I talk about habitable zones. Because you've probably heard that a number of my fellow astronomers will say, well, there's 40 billion planets in, our, in the habitable zone or Milky Way galaxy alone. But all they're looking at is water habitability. Today we know of nine distinct habitable zones. So, for example, in addition to the water habitable zone, you got the ultraviolet habitable zone the astrophere habitable zone, uh, the atmospheric electric field habitable zone. Now, we do know of 3,600 planets outside of our solar system, but of all the planets we discovered, there's only one planet that resides in all nine habitable zones, and that's the one you and I are sitting on. And unless it resides simultaneously in all nine habitable zones, the planet is not habitable. So they're really being unfair then. It's almost as if they're picking and choosing when they suggest, uh, based on some of these calculations, that there could be up to 40 billion possible habitable planets uh, in the Milky Way galaxy. But it doesn't take into consideration all of these factors suggesting that the notion that Earth can have a life-supporting twin is probably unlikely? That's right. They're picking the most generous zone and ignoring the ones that are the most restrictive. I mean, water is the third most abundant molecule in the universe. The universe is really wet. So the fact that we find water in a lot of places is no big surprise, but there's eight other factors that need to be taken into account. Moreover, the structure of the planets. You know, we have eight planets in our solar system. was actually born with ten. And unless those ten are all fine-tuned exactly the way they were or are, 
you cannot have advanced life on planet Earth. And of course, what's fascinating about this, as I suggested in the opening remarks, that as you make in the book, the comparison between uh, the building of a habitable planet to the building of a habitable building, that uh, in both cases it starts with having the essential construction materials at hand. And even the balance of that is very unique to planet Earth, is it not? It is. There's a chapter in the book on dirt where I basically encourage people, don't take dirt for granted. Our planet has got the only dirt that allows you to grow uh, food grains. I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw that movie about the Martian that showed Matt Damon growing potatoes on Mars. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Well, the soil of Mars has got 60 times as much sulfur as Earth does. You're not going to be able to grow anything on Mars unless you bring soil from planet Earth. Fascinating. And, of course, with that idea, not only is it essential that you have the right construction materials, but there's another factor here, uh, and that is anybody that's going to build a building, let's say it's for, uh, uh, you know, uh, living purposes, you want to make sure it's in the right neighborhood. Nobody's going to put up a beautiful uh, three- or four-bedroom home with a swimming pool and put it right in the middle of an industrial park that's surrounded by nothing but uh, light industry and large warehouses. And I guess the same thing is equally true, in a sense, in relationship to not just that we exist, but where Earth is situated in relationship to, uh, what should we call it, the rest of our, our neighborhood here in the Milky Way galaxy? Well, in order for advanced flight to be possible, our solar system must be born in the most dangerous part of our Milky Way galaxy, relatively close to the center of the galaxy. That's so we can get enriched with sufficient heavy elements from exploding stars. But it's essential we get kicked out right, at, right after we get enriched. And we see about our sun is it got kicked out from the most dangerous place in our Milky Way galaxy and situated in the safest place in our Milky Way galaxy. And that happens to be the only place in our Milky Way galaxy where we astronomers can observe the entirety of the universe and directly witness the cosmic creation event. So God not only put us in the best possible place uh, for civilization, he also put us in the best possible place to make scientific discoveries. And there's also something that I learned fascinating inside the pages of your new book, Improbable Planet, and that is this notion that as much as suggesting that there is up to 40 billion possible habitable planets that discounts a lot of critical factors, then, too, isn't it true that this notion that uh, there are other galaxies that could support life? For example, you make an A-B comparison between the characteristics of the Milky Way galaxy versus the Andromeda galaxy. Tell us about what some of those critical distinctions are? Well, often we look at the Andromeda galaxy and call it a sister galaxy because of how much it looks like the Milky Way, but when you look at its spiral arm structure, it's warped and it's distorted. Why? Because it suffered a collision from a fairly big dwarf galaxy just a half billion years ago. And the warping and the distortion is such that it eliminates the possibility of advanced life in that galaxy. And there's actually 200 different features of our Milky Way galaxy that must be exquisitely fine-tuned for advanced light to be possible. You, know, you have to have a spiral arm structure. The spiral arms have to be extremely symmetrical, and they have to have the right space between the spiral arms. The galaxy's got to be the right mass. It needs to have a high ratio of dark matter uh, to ordinary matter in it, and it's got to be relatively free of spurs and feathers between the arms. And we have studied thousands of other spiral galaxies. Ours is the only one that meets the characteristics that advanced life needs. 
And if you take a look at those two differences, if, if the characteristics that you observe of the Andromeda galaxy were present in the Milky Way galaxy, that would then suggest that life could not be sustainable on planet Earth inside the Milky Way? You might build up bacteria that could exist for a few months, but you wouldn't have plants, animals, and you certainly wouldn't have human beings. It just becomes that uh, hostile, in other words, to the it's ability of sustaining hostile. life. Everywhere we look in the universe, we see hostility for advanced life except in our planet Earth. And, you know, after a while, you look at this, and as much as nobody looks at a fantastic building, you look at the Pyramid uh, Transamerica building in downtown San Francisco, you take a look at the Sears Tower in Chicago, look at the uh, Empire State Building in New York City, and you, you've got to think to yourself, that took forethought, that took engineering ability, that took planning, that took science, that took not only uh, a sense of vision, but also a sense of the end game, a sense of what the purpose would be. And as we're learning today from Dr. Hugh Ross, there's more than just planning behind the presence of life on Earth, but in fact, purpose too. We'll talk a bit about that as well and when we continue with our conversation. The new book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home, newly published by Baker Books, available through the usual suspects. Get it online at Amazon.com. You can also order it directly through Reasons to Believe simply by going to Reasons.org. That's Reasons.org. We'll come back to more of our conversation with best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we're learning today, even when somebody like Carl Sagan suggests that millions of life planets must exist, um, suggesting that there is nothing unusual or extraordinary about planet Earth, Dr. Hugh Ross is proving the contrary to be true, that there are complexities about this planet that make life here possible that with uh, just a variety of changes here and there would suddenly make its sustainability impossible. Toward that end, you also talk in the book, as you sort of lead to this uh, logical conclusion, Dr. Ross, that if Earth is capable of sustaining physical life, as it's demonstrated down through its history, um, we've certainly have seen also then the ability of it to sustain physical life along with mind-possessing life. But you take it a step further. You suggest that not only can the planet sustain physical life and mind-possessing life, but also spiritual life. Tell me more about that. Yes. I mean, uh, the whole purpose for God creating is to bring about a redemptive relationship between him and the human species. And we're told in the Bible that he intends to bring a countless number into that relationship. And the Greeks could count up to a billion, so he's talking billions. So that implies that the earth must be designed in such a way to support billions of people at one time. And that only began to happen 9,000 years ago. So only for the past 9,000 years has that been possible. And we also notice that uh, he salted the earth uh, with all the resources we need to make possible the technology we need to take the good news of redemption to all the people groups of the world. Everything is targeting purpose. I would argue that the earth and its inhabitants, all of its life, all of its history, screams that there's purpose for humanity and actually targets us to exactly what that purpose is. And so I'm amazed at all the new scientific discoveries of the past two years. I mean, one thing we discovered is that uh, in order for plate tectonics to start and be sustained, 
you need life to be created at the same time and to be sustained throughout that time. Life requires plate tectonics, plate tectonics requires life, and all that plate tectonics and life is necessary to provide us with the resources so that billions of human beings can hear and respond to the redemptive message. Is this eventually going to force those that come at this purely from a scientific standpoint and wish to go no further, um, that as we look at the progression of well, the laws of physics and their impact on planet Earth, natural selection, its impact, ultimately coming to the slow realization that for there to be laws, for there to be natural selection, there must be a source for all of that? Well, I think so. I mean, I was at a conference once where atheist scientists were speaking and they all insisted that there was no God, but they also insisted that we human beings have purpose. We got value. Uh, we have some kind of eternal destiny. And it's like none of that makes sense if there is no God. But if God designed this universe uh, so that we did have purpose and ultimate destiny, then it all makes sense. But what that revealed to me is that we human beings, no matter how hard we try, cannot deny that within us we have purpose we have meaning, we have value. It's written upon our hearts. I mean, it tells us that in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I find that even committed atheists have a very difficult time denying that. Yes, yeah, some, um, some of the remarks made by even um, Richard Dawkins over the last year or two are beginning to suggest that there's a bit of thawing, <laughs> even of his position. Yes. Well, I mean, what I admire about Richard Dawkins, he says science can test religious ideas. I agree with him on that, and I'm eager to try to use science as a tool to test competing religious ideas. Part of the science also um, beginning to put some holes into Charles Darwin's theory, and I asked that question because Darwin, of course, always held that there was a presumption of development and transformation of development of life on the planet that was slow, it was smooth, it was gradual, it was contiguous, but you argue in the book that that just simply isn't so. Well, I do. In uh, Chapter 12, I talk about what's called the faint sun paradox, how the sun today is 20 to 25 percent brighter than it was when God first created life. But life can only tolerate about a 2 percent change in the solar brightness. And we notice is that uh, we see in these mass extinction and mass speciation events that life is wholesale removed from planet Earth and shortly thereafter replaced with completely different species of life. But we notice about those replacements, they're more efficient at pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So as the sun gets progressively brighter and brighter, the greenhouse effect of Earth's atmosphere becomes progressively weaker and weaker, keeping the temperature on the surface of the Earth ideal for life. But my point is this, only a mind that knows the future physics of the sun and the Earth will know which light to remove and with new life to replace that, remove life with. And it's actually stated that way in uh, Psalm uh, 104, that it's a property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. If he's not constantly removing life and replacing that life, then quickly the sun's luminosity makes it impossible for any life to be sustained for the rest of the history of the earth. So this is a classic example if we integrate across the scientific disciplines, that's where we see that the holes in the Darwinian paradigm are not just in one discipline, 
they're in all the disciplines. And, and fascinating, even as we make that comparison to something as simple as a seed falling to the earth and dying and then giving forth life, that even right. in the most simplicity um, of, of creation, it's there. Well, one thing I talk about in the book is that the grains that are crucial for feeding our planet, they only existed in the very recent history of Earth. It literally took billions of years of preparation of previous life forms to make possible the existence of rice and wheat and oats and millet. And without that, we couldn't feed our population. So if we string all of this together, Earth providing essential construction materials situated in the right neighborhood, the uniqueness of our solar system, all of this is sort of builds layer upon layer. Um, we begin to slowly draw the conclusion that all of this has to come together with a plan, and if a plan, there must be a architect, there must be a planner, and as you suggest at the conclusion of the book, ultimately that leads us back to the notion that God himself planned and prepared Earth as our home. He did, and he particularly targeted us human beings not just a God creating a home for life. He wanted a home where there'd be sentient beings that could come into a relationship with him. All of it exists for us human beings. Ultimately, what would you conclude is, is your intent in terms of the, the takeaway um, for readers that look at this book, either because they're trying to understand more from a scientific viewpoint or see the deeper correlation between uh, the creator and the creation. What's the big takeaway in, in, in the way you've approached writing this book? Well, the universe has to be exactly the size that it is. Every star, every planet, every comet, uh, every bacterium, every life form, every event in history, the universe and the Earth and Earth's light has to be exactly the way it is for us human beings uh, to exist and to develop the kind of civilization we need to discover God and come into relationship with Him. The takeaway I hope people will realize is that we human beings are incredibly valuable in the sight of the Creator and that He has a purpose uh, for us. He wants us to discover that purpose. So I end the book by basically challenging people with there's a purpose for humanity in general but God has designed a special purpose for every individual human being. The purpose he has for me is different from all the other 7.5 billion people on the earth. I need to find what that purpose is and fulfill it in the few decades that God has me here in this creation. And, of course, what's so wonderful about the conclusions that we can draw at the end of Improbable Planet is that this... Um, spinning sphere upon which we call home is far too complex, too detailed, and too involved to simply have happened by accident. And if created, then therefore a creator. If designed with purpose, then certainly there must be a designer and a plan in place. The book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home, newly released by Baker Books. You'll find it available through Bay Area bookstores as well as directly through Reasons to Believe at reasons.org. That's reasons.org. The book again called Improbable Planet by our guest tonight, best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross, as always, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And again, the book available through reasons.org. That's reasons.org. Improbable Planet by Dr. Hugh Ross.
Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.